0: Before we get into the teaching, a couple house cleaning or detail points, just FYIs. A couple weeks ago on Easter, we conjectured what life would be like if Jesus hadn't really risen from the dead. That was kind of the theme for Easter Sunday. I was in a church service years ago, and the guy that was speaking said that the longer he studied or read or had been around, he realized not only that he had no original thoughts, but that someone had already said it better. And as I was looking at my bookshelf this morning, uh, DJ, Kenne- D.J. Kennedy, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born book. So if you want to take our thoughts from Easter and go quite a bit further and, and have someone else say it much better than I did, I'm sure, uh, from 1994, Kennedy's book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born. Also, if you've got a bulletin, the title on the message this morning it says, Two Wives." As I've explained a couple earlier, I make these titles long before the week I teach, and you may not hear anything about Two Wives this morning at all, but it's sort of there. I'll try and remember to mention it at the end. (coughs) Ask yourself uh, this question before we start in the text. We'll be in Genesis 16, but uh, what would you do to be happy? What would you be willing to do to be happy? And uh, as I was thinking about this and trying to come up with... uh, illustrations or something that would help us get started on thinking about it. The story of David in Second Samuel, I believe it's chapter 11, uh, came to mind. You know, when you think of King David in the Old Testament or in the Bible, he's this high figure. He's this guy that God loved and God sort of singles him out and says, this is a guy after my own heart. And he makes these incredible promises to him about him and his children after him generations to come. And he really is a hero of the faith. He's on a pedestal in some ways. You know, the flip side is uh, David had some real problems in life. Most of us know about at least one which was uh, called uh, his adultery with Bathsheba. And <clears throat> if you think about the dynamics of that story, uh, I don't think David was sitting there thinking to himself, what would I will, uh, be willing to do to make myself happy. But a series of events came about. He sees this lovely gal across, no clothes on. He knows who she is. He's sort of made no plans to guard himself ahead of time. And he is the king. So people come when he says come. They go when he says go. You know, he has the power of life and death. So sort of on this impulse, he sends the servants. They bring Bathsheba back. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Now he's got a problem because he could, have, he could have hidden the sin. He could have just told her, don't tell anyone, and no one here will tell anyone. But now she's pregnant. Her husband's been away, so she'll be pregnant. Her husband's been gone. Somebody's going to know what's going on. So then adultery turns to murder, of course, when he conspires to have Uriah, his good friend Uriah, and a hero in the army of Israel. He has Uriah killed, murdered in battle. It's, it is murder, <clears throat> to cover up his sin. Now, after this happens, of course, God isn't going to let his man get away with this. So he sends the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells him a story. David's enraged. And then Nathan points his finger at David and says, you're the man. You know, you're the evil man in this story I just stated. And so God tells him, you're going to lose the son Bathsheba's pregnant with, this illicit child. Not only that, but you've introduced this element of shame and guilt and turmoil into your family that will last for generations to come. So at the end of the day, if you talk to David and said, David, if you were faced with this situation again, would you do the same things? You know, I'm sure he wouldn't. But caught in the moment before he thought about this and guarded his heart, one thing led to another, and he had this desire. It was inappropriate. He didn't say no to it. He followed up on it. He took matters into his own hand. He grabbed for what he thought he wanted. And then there was hell to pay as day followed day and as the fallout of this sin occurred. So what would you be willing to do to be happy? What would you be willing to do to be happy? Think about that as we go through the story this morning. This is six short verses in Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6. And it's the story of Sarai and Abram. It's their story continued. This portion this morning, this is all about Sarai, as you'll see. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, the Lord, Yahweh, has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. By the way, the surrogacy method of obtaining children. This was a fairly common practice in their time. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went in to Hagar. She conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done me be upon you.'" I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now put this story in context this morning. uh, It's always easy to look at someone else's story and remember what they should have done, but Abram's 85 years old when this occurs, and Sarai's 75 years old. So they're old, and even by their day, they're old. You know, in these stories, these folks are living 120, 130 years old, but they're still old here. Now, on one hand, we know Sarai's still a very beautiful woman because in stories coming up, Abimelech, a a Gentile king, wants to take her and make her one of his wives. So she's still a very attractive woman. We know Abram's a virile man even though he's 85. We know this guy will be having kids to near the end of his life. He'll have kids with his second wife, Keturah, many years from now. But they don't know that now. They don't know that now. They're looking at their lives and they know they're old. And it's been 10 years. The text makes sure we know it's been 10 years since they came to Canaan. And you remember part of the promise that God gave them when they left Haran was, you go there and I'll make you a nation. And that didn't just involve land, that meant that they would have children. Well, it's been 10 years and there have been no children. They're old and they're getting older. And I'm sure, guys, they thought, we've held out. We've been patient, Lord. We've waited. 10 years, still no children. We're waiting. Think of this from Sarai's perspective too. Because in our culture we don't always value children, uh, the way they did in ancient cultures, this is, you've you got to get your mind in a different place. They really wanted kids. They didn't just want kids, they really wanted kids. And to not have children was a sign you assumed that you'd been cursed by God. And not just the family, but especially the woman. Because in this culture, you know, their, their knowledge of science was limited. And the picture was the man sows his seed in the womb of the woman. And so if nothing grows, it's because the woman is barren. It's as if her womb is like land that won't grow anything. So the men were never blamed. It was always the woman. The woman's barren. She can't produce children. So for both of them, you know, there's a sense of frustration. We've talked about this before. They want a boy. They want a little guy. That's what they're after. In all of life, you know, whatever comes back to the Lord makes these promises, and Abram's like, Lord, what good is that to me? I don't have an heir. They want a child. This is their hope. This is what they really want in life and in this world. And he hasn't come along. And they've waited. And she's desperate. And I think you need to, you need to have a sense. We need to have a sense as we contemplate the story this sense of desperation, this, this sense of I'm driven to get this thing I really want in the world. And so, she makes clear in verse 2, Sarai does, she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing. And again, in the stories of Genesis in the Old Testament, people understood that God gave or God withheld. So she says, it's God, it's Yahweh, that's prevented me from bearing children. So Sarah is saying to herself, I'm desperate. I've waited. God has not given me what He promised. God hasn't given me the one thing in life I really want. She thinks about it and she develops a plan. And she's going to take matters into her own hand. And that's what these first six verses of chapter 16 are all about. She is determined to provide for herself what God has withheld. This is a dangerous equation. If God has withheld something from us and we determine to get it for ourselves, this is the beginning of trouble. And look... In this verse, look at the verbs in this, these six verses. <clears throat> this story is all about Sarai and what Sarai can do. So her name opens the chapter, verse 1, Sarai's name opens the chapter. But verse 2, Sarai said. Verse 3, Sarai took. Also in verse 3, though her name's not in front of it, Sarai gave. Verse 5, Sarai said. And verse 6, Sarai treated. In this story, Sarai is in charge. God's not in charge and Abram's not in charge. Sarai's in charge. This is about what Sarai can grab for herself. I'm taking matters into my own hands. We'll see what we can bring about. Now, on the flip side of this, Sarai's in charge. She's grabbing things for herself. She's taking matters into her own hand. The other side of this too, though, is that Abram has led her. Abram has allowed this. And Abram's pretty passive in this. So you look at Abram in verse 2. Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Verse 4, Abram went into Hagar. That's not so passive, of course. But the thing is, Abram is following Sarah's lead. The leader is following. And this is not a good equation either. When the leaders are following, something's wrong too. And there's trouble coming, you can just count on it. And that's what's going on here. Sarai's initiating, Abram's following. Now, <clears throat> there's a time and there's a place when those in leadership need to listen to those that they're leading. And you'll see this later, just in Genesis 21, for Sarai and Abram. So, there, after Ishmael, this son that's going to be born to Hagar, is born, and he's a young teenager, and God's fulfilled his promise, and Sarai has had little Isaac. Um, Ishmael mocks Isaac. And this troubles Sarah. And so she says to Abram, Hey, I want the maid, Hagar, and her child out of here. And you can imagine Abram, that's his son. Ishmael's his son. And this is grievous to him. But God says in Genesis twenty-one twelve. Don't be distressed because of the lad and your maid, whatever Sarah tells you. Listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. So it's not as if those who have the responsibility to lead never listen to, never should listen to, those they are responsible to lead. But you've got to be careful when you do that. And Abram was capitulating his leadership here. This was not the time to listen to Sarah. This was the time to tell her, slow down, let's think about this, let's pray about this, let's talk this over. There is a time for leaders to listen to those that they're leading. This was not it. If you are in a position of leadership, if you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're a mom with kids, if you're an employer, if you're an older sibling to a younger sibling, you know, whatever you can think of where you know you have a responsibility, you want to exercise that in a way that you'll be glad you did when you see Christ face to face and so if you, if you feel like this might be one of those situations where I need to listen to those I'm responsible for, where they're actually the ones that have the better idea than I do, where I need to see things as they see things, you need to pray about that. And it may be that's one of those times when God wants you to take your cues from those you're leading. That may very well be the case. You just have to be careful because if you've been entrusted with authority, you're going to answer for that authority. That responsibility, you got to be careful. So if you're giving it away, if you're listening to those you'd normally be leading, just be careful when you do that. So you've got Sarai leading. She's the initiator. She's leading. You've got Abram following. And then you got this third party to this unhappy trio, don't you? And that would be Hagar, right? Now, Hagar is sort of passive in this too because she's a servant. And in this day, of course, servants... Not like we, not household servants like we have today. We wouldn't even call them that, hired help or whatever. You know, in this day in this culture, slavery was common and servants were common. And that was part of life and culture. And we think of American slavery and, and we have sort of an abhorrence to the thought that you would control someone in the sense of a slave or a servant. Throughout history, though, this has been very common. Sometimes, oftentimes, for the benefit of those who had a household, who had food and clothing, etc., that wouldn't have otherwise. My suspicion is that normally to be a servant in the house of Abram and Sarai was probably a positive thing. I suspect because they were godly people generally that Hagar would have been treated well. But what happens to her in this story? And this is... Steve taught a few weeks ago on idols, and we'll talk about this in the context of idolatry. But look at what happens to Hagar in this story. Remember the dynamic... Sarai wants something. So she's taken matters into her own hand, and she's determined to get this child her way. Even if it's not God's way, it's going to be her way. So, what happens to Hagar? Hagar becomes breeding stock, right? She's a means to an end, she's an object. She's sort of not a person anymore. She's called your maid. Abram calls her your maid. She's my maid. She's a thing. And again even accounting for we understand their slavery and their servants in this culture in a way that we wouldn't see today even accounting for that Hagar becomes an object because someone else is determined that getting what they want is more important than anything else in life and guys this is one of the things that happens when we create idols and an idol when I say idol this an idol is anything that we put in front of our relationship with God or anything we put over God, an idol becomes the controlling influence in our life. It's a hope, it's a desire, it's a dream, it's something, it's someone. And think about this. We, we, again, we went over this not long ago with Steve, but think about this. This can be all kinds of things. We'll, we'll reflect on this again in a little bit. But when we create an idol by our desire, there's a sense in which we devalue God because we lower Him, His status in our mind, But we also do the same thing to people. So we make whatever that desire is, that idol, it becomes more important than God. We elevate it above God and we devalue the people around us because they become means to our end. We objectify people when we create idols. This is one of the fallouts of idolatry. So, Sarai leads, Abram follows, and Hagar becomes a means to an end. I asked myself, when Sarai takes matters into her own hand, she wants a baby boy. That's what she wants. That's what she's after. That's what she's going to get. Does she get what she's after? And, of course, the answer on one level is, well, yeah, she does. She gets a baby boy. You know, it could have been a girl, right? (laughs) I don't know what she's done, but it's a boy. She gets what she's after. This heir for Abram. But but does she really get what she wanted? You know, and, and no, she didn't. Verse 4 and 5, she's despised by Hagar. So before, she was the mistress. Hagar showed respect to her, but now what's happened? No, Hagar despises her now. That's part of what she got. But also verses 5 and 6, this interaction you see between Abram and Sarai, these are the same words later that Jacob's father-in-law Laban will say to him, when they're dividing with animus between each other when Jacob's coming back to the land of promise from Haran later. When Laban says, The Lord watch between me and you, it's sort of a curse. It's like God'll get you if you break your word to me. That's what's being said between the husband and wife here. See, there this this division, this frustration and anger, it didn't exist before in in their relationship before this. But now they've got this level of frustration, anger and separation based on what's happened here. Also, chapter 21, Ishmael mocks and makes fun of the child of promise. On one hand, we might say this is sort of childish stuff and it doesn't matter. But you know, Paul picks up Genesis 21 in Galatians 4 to say that the child of promise was persecuted by Hagar the slave's son that Paul sees this as an analogy that those who aren't the ones God promised and said He was going to work through, they typically, and this is often religious, they persecute the promised child. So Paul picks this up in the New Testament and says this is typical of what goes on. The illegitimates, so to speak, persecute God's promised ones. You see later in Genesis 37... It's the descendants of Ishmael that take Sarai's great-grandson Joseph as a slave, as chattel, <laughs> as slave. Her great-grandson is treated as a slave by Ishmael's descendants because they buy him, they take him to Egypt, and they sell him. Can you imagine if you'd told Sarai what's going to happen from your actions with the child God's still going to give you? In Psalm 83.6, it's the Ishmaelites who conspire with Edom and Moab against Israel. So again, you ask, did Sarai get what she wanted? And you say, well, sort of, but not really. So she wanted an heir, she got an heir, but she also got strife and turmoil, and she sowed the seeds for discord and trouble between her descendants and the descendants of Ishmael for generations to come. Now, Kathy and I were talking about this this week. You know, one of the things that's really helpful, if you're reading a story in the Bible, it's to sort of take ten steps or three steps back, and it's just to restate the points of the story objectively. Take the names out. What are the dynamics of the story? And then see if they relate to anything else you're familiar with. So just go back and relate the dynamics of the story, just the points. A woman wants something that God has withheld from her. Do you know where we're going with this? Do you guys know? A woman, something's withheld from a woman. She takes matters into her own hand and grabs for what was forbidden. And then she gives it to her husband. Are you guys with me yet? The fruit is not so sweet as she thought it would be. There's division and strife between she and her husband. And then there's division and strife in the lives of her descendants. So now do you know where the points okay back to genesis right this is eve in the garden and god's withheld one thing and he says guys everything's okay except that one thing so don't go there but what happens eve gets that thing in her mind i really want that apple of course she's tempted and what happens the the apple becomes the idol what happens to god's value in her eyes it's diminished what happens to adam he's diminished because now all that's important is taking that one thing that I've decided will make my life complete. So I grab for it, I share it, and what happened? I sow the seeds of death. <clears throat> the dynamics of this story, this is where you and I live every day. God is a good God. He's a Father who loves us. He promises to give us all good things. And yet we'll see something that God has withheld, and we decide we've got to have it. We devalue God. The people around us become objects, means to our end. And even if we get what we really thought we wanted, we lose. Because that thing got our way. It brings with it the seeds of death and discord. It it can't be any other way. And that's exactly what you see in the dynamics of this story. Contrast this with what God does. Now, they were after a son. And... God told them, if you remember just one chapter prior, Genesis 15, God told Abram, from your body, you're going to have a son. So we understand Sarai, you know, Abram talks to her and says, God said, we're going to have a son, I'm going to have a boy. So maybe she thought, well, from your body, but maybe not from mine. So maybe, you know, Hagar becomes this option, let's say. But the promise was there, so they knew God had said Abram would have a son. But what does it look like when God keeps his promise? And he does. He can't lie. He can never not keep his word. So in the next chapter, and by the way, this is several years later. I don't mean to minimize the fact that this is a long time. So when they have Isaac, Ishmael's about 13 or 14 years old. So that's the difference between chapter 16 and 17. I don't mean to minimize. It's a long time. Ten years, and now another 13 or 14 But in chapter 17, it says, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, don't call her Sarai, but Sarah will be her new name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall be nations. Kings of people will come from her. So this is the promise specific to Sarah in the next chapter. And then if you read the rest of the story in Genesis 21, Yahweh took note of Sarah as he had said. Remember, Sarah's doing it her way. God says, I made a promise. I'm going to keep it my way. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived. She bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. The appointed time would be a key phrase there. This was in God's time, not necessarily in theirs. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then in verse 6 there, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Contrast those two stories. Sarah creates an idol out of something that she wants, something that was not illegitimate, the desire for a child. This was not an illegitimate desire. Perfectly natural desire. Nothing wrong with that at all. But raised to the status of idolatry because it became more important than God. She gets she takes matters into her own hands. She gets what she wants sort of, but she gets all this downside too. Strife, mayhem, trouble, not just for her, for generations to come. Contrast that with God doing as he promised. They get the son of promise. There's peace, there's joy, and there's laughter. I love I love the contrast here. When God blesses There's no downside. When we reach out and grab what we want, we take matters into our own hands. There's always a downside. You can't get away from it. Uh, I was engaged to a young woman 30 years ago. And... uh, Yeah, yeah, we were both young. Uh, We were engaged. But this... uh, These days of dating and courtship, sort of lots of miles in between, lots of phone calls, lots of letters, and both of us sort of coming out of, uh, uh, let's just say, confusion. And and God sort of getting a hold of our lives in new ways and still trying to put pieces together. And so we were engaged, but there was still a bit of confusion around some key elements in life. And so one day I got off the phone with my fiancé sitting here in the front row, And I was praying for God to bless us. And guys, I don't know how to say this other than God said no. And I knew he meant no. No. Loud. No. And so I prayed. And some of you have heard this before. See, I pled with God. And uh, I told God what a lousy planner he was. How he was wrecking my life. How he didn't realize what he was doing to me. How if he was really good and really loved me, he'd give me what I really wanted. And uh, God said no. And guys, it's not like I was particularly wise, bright, mature, anything. But at the end of the day, this was the deal. I just had this much fear of my dad that I couldn't cross him. So I said, okay, I won't marry her. And out of that came a new conversation. And those elements that were the issues God was after all the time, which were a couple, were resolved. And we were able to get married because they'd been taken care of, none of which I knew was coming on the front end of things. But you see, part of the deal was I'd made an idol out of a young woman that I wanted to marry. And God says he doesn't want anybody in front of any of us between him and us as individuals. And I'd made an idol out of this young Polish lassie from Topeka. And so God made sure before we got married that I understood he was God and my wife wasn't, and that I answered to him. Kathy was not claiming to be God, by the way. (laughs) But the other thing that it did was it resolved these issues. If we had married on my terms, our lives would have been, I think, not only chaotic, but they would have been a wreck. And what God did by settling these issues before we got married, it meant our families history and the the future of our life was built on a solid foundation we were on the same page and we both knew god was first and we had to live a life and a marriage that would honor him and so i shudder when i think one of what my life would have been like apart from christ i was an angry young man i was depressed and lonely very successful in the world sense of things but totally felt like a loser a suicidal i become a christian that's good but then marriage, on our terms, it would, have been, it would have done the same thing again, sowed the seeds of death and frustration for the future. So instead, God withholds the thing and says, I won't bear you having an idol. And just out of the little bit of the fear of my dad I had, I said, okay. And because of that, he turns around and just blesses us greatly. We've had marriage and kids, it's been the funnest thing ever. I mean, it's been better. It's all that I wanted. It's all that I ever wanted. So it's been better than we knew it would be. But it was because God said, no idols in this realm, Guy, You're not starting this way. And so he gave us Isaac, so to speak. He gave us his version in his time of what we really did want. You know, and in this story, Sarai didn't want a little guy that would end up bringing this division into the world and would bring mocking. She didn't want that. She really wanted the son. And God was going to give it to her, but she had to. Hold on. She had to hold out. She had to refuse to take matters in her own hands. And it didn't happen. And so that's why there was trouble. When you think about this, just ask yourself, following up on Steve's teaching again a few weeks ago. When you think about this for yourself, what are the idols, and I would say potential idols, in your own life right now? So if you're not married, is marriage an idol? Do you say, man, I've got to get married? I'd settle for less. You know, I'd take him or I'd take her even. Does marriage become an idol? Or if you're married and you'd love to have children, like Sarah and Abraham, and you haven't been able to, do children become an idol? Or the desire for children, does that become an idol to you? For some in this church, does a church building become an idol? Are we willing to lay hold of something that God's, God's not blessing us with yet? A church building. Or some measure of success or a vacation or a car you you, you get it what as you look at your life do you say i've got this thing that i really want and it's more important than god and if i could i'd take matters into my own hand and i'd get that thing and guys when you're there you're with eve looking at the apple you're here with sarai and that's the point you got to tell yourself wake up take a step back because it's that That moment when that thing becomes the idol, that's the the danger point. You've got to get away from that because the idols always spell death. We're always sowing the seeds of death when we reach for that thing and take it into our own hands, just as she did here. Just winding down on applications, the big point here is that one woman is enough for any man. Too much for most of us. Sorry, your title was two wives, question mark. One woman is enough and more than enough sometimes for any man. Sorry, just kidding, but I had to get that in. Uh, two wives is not a good idea. I might just say, you know, you read about many of the patriarchs, many wives, unhappy stories all the time. Sorry. Uh, the real uh, wind down uh, is this. The meek inherit the earth. Matthew five five: the meek inherit the earth. I know this isn't related to our passage this morning, but think about this. Jesus says in the context of God's kingdom, it's the meek who get everything. (laughs) And meekness and gentleness means people who don't grab things for themselves. They're not self-centered. They're willing to wait for God. And by the way, if you read through the, the pages of the Bible, you'll see there's a huge theme about waiting on God. So in Genesis 21, it said that it was God's purpose fulfilling His promise in His time. And one of the big things for us is the willingness to wait on God honors God. It shows we trust Him. It shows that we're putting Him ahead of our own desires, that we're not willing to take matters into our own hands, that we're willing to wait on Him to bring into our lives, to bring about for us maybe those things He's promised us or just those things we simply really want but the meek inherit the earth. When you and I show meekness and faith and the willingness to lay those things that could be idols down at God's feet and say, Lord, we entrust those to you. We ask you to make good in our lives those things we really want. God honors that. And God knows us. He knows what we'll get when we do things our own way. And he knows how to really bless us. The meek inherit the earth. And God had promised Isaac and he gave Isaac. And Abram and Sarah would have known none of the downside of this if they hadn't taken matters into their own hands. That's a biggie. Along with that theme of meekness, honor God's lines of authority. This is not a popular thing ever to say, uh, but especially in our culture in which we thumb our nose at authority. You know, the Bible talks a lot about authority and lines of authority. And it's never in the sense that God means to keep some down by elevating others. But God works in a line of authority. You see this most clearly spoken directly in First Corinthians eleven. There's lines of authority. Jesus says that when he faces Pilate, he says your authority comes from someone above you. You're just you're in this pecking order. You didn't even choose. You don't. Have, this isn't your power. This is someone else's. All authority and power is derived ultimately from God. So when we honor those lines of authority, we are, in fact, honoring God. And it's another way that we trust God or that we live life by faith. It's not popular to tell people to submit to authority, but that's what God wants us to do. When Sarai took matters into her own hands, she came out from under the line of authority God meant her to live in, which was Abram, her husband, leading. And it spells disaster and catastrophe. And lots of the confusion you see in our culture today is because leaders don't lead. People who are called to lead don't lead or don't lead well. And of course, that then engenders this accusation, they don't lead well, so what do you do? You've got to take matters into your own hand. This is not what the Scripture tells us to do. When we honor lines of authority, we are in fact honoring and trusting God. That's an important thing. It's something important to consider in this story. And then the last is this, refuse to make anyone and anything less than God your ultimate hope and dream. Be willing to pitch the idols. You know, when you read stories about returns, uh, you'll see that there's often this theme of pitching idols along the way. So when Jacob later in the Genesis stories comes back into the land of promise, they take all their idols. See, they've accumulated them along the way. The story doesn't tell us. We just realize as they've gone through life, they've accumulated these material idols. And so Jacob says, hey, we've got to get rid of all that before we go back and sort of make this new love commitment to God again. And you and I tend to collect idols along the way. And we've got to be willing to recognize those things, and we've got to be willing to pitch them. Anything short of God himself is bound to disappoint. It can't help but be otherwise. This world that we live of, it's dust like us. And all our hopes and dreams, if they're on something short of God, they're just dust. They won't last. They'll always disappoint. We've got to be willing to chuck the idols. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck again in a story, a short story like this in Genesis, how important it is to make you God in our lives, to entrust you with the things we care about, the things we desire and hope for. Lord, there are so many uh, desires in each one of us for things that you mean to bless us with. And yet even those can sow seeds of death and disaster when we take them up in our own way. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take this theme seriously about refusing to make idols out of things you mean to bless us with. Lord, help us to refuse to belittle you and belittle other people by making them means to our ends. Help us to refuse to take up your mantle as God. Help us to submit ourselves to you. Help us to be willing to wait on you to make your good plan visible. Lord, I'm thinking of the verse out of Isaiah 64 that says, There's no other God like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him.